1 Kings chapter 17. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go, live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. And so he went to Zarephath. And as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a little handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of a jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal. And then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. And then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. And so she did, as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because of your great promise, because of your word. We thank you because you have a plan, and that plan is awesome, and it is good. Reveal yourself. Show yourself in the middle of every circumstance that we face. And everyone said, you may be seated. So, so what's happening in the story? Why is why is this woman and her, her kids starving? What's going on? Okay, so a little backstory here. You, you have a wicked king, King Ahab, and his wife, Queen Jezebel, on the throne of Israel. And I mean Jezebel. I mean so evil, right? Her name thousands of years later, synonymous with evil, right? People who've never cracked a Bible, never darkened the door of a church, would know exactly what I meant if I said, man, that woman's a Jezebel. Am I right? This woman's like Darla Vader, like, like Dark Lady of the Sith, right? Can, can you imagine being so evil that thousands of years later, the only thing people even remember about you is that you're just this devil-worshipping, murderous, conniving, selfish, greedy person, right? Got no love for Jezebel or her husband Ahab. They are both corrupt and selfish. Here's what it says about Ahab. Uh, in chapter 16, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, that, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. You see, uh, I'm not going to go through a laundry list of all this stuff, but I think front and center here of the problems is that they were worshiping the idol Baal. And what you need to know about this false god, Baal, is that this was the god of unbridled greed, of unbridled lust, of unbridled power. And those who worshiped Baal did so by killing babies and by committing acts of debauchery in hopes that Baal would then give them more, more rain, more crops, more animals, more money, more, more, more. And God uses Elijah in a powerful way to make it clear 
to all of God's people, and specifically to Ahab and Jezebel, exactly who holds all the cards. God is not going to leave any question about his almighty sovereign power and authority. And this false god of selfish greed was about to get publicly shamed. And his PR people, in the form of Ahab and Jezebel and their circle of power, they were about to get unmasked for the liars and the deceivers that they were. I can almost hear God, you know, saying like Colonel John Hannibal Smith. No, I never should have doubted you, boys. There's a plan in everything, kid. And I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) And I love it when a plan comes together. And God grants Elijah the power to change the weather patterns through prayer to stop the rain from falling and thereby show Baal to be a powerless sham and all of the evil acts of devotion to Baal as a pointless waste. And through Elijah, God is saying that the endless pursuit of selfish greed can get overturned in a moment and that blessing, true blessing, can only come from his hand. And so now, the land is in severe drought, and it's in a famine, and God's raven delivery service is keeping Elijah well-fed. But one day, the brook that Elijah's living next to, that's been sustaining him, it all dries up, and he needs a new plan. Now, I want to ask, how many of you know what Snopes.com is? Hands? Okay, a few of you know what Snopes is. Okay, for those of you who don't know, Snopes is like a, it's a fact-checking website, right, so to check out uh, the accuracy of urban legends. And you know what I'm talking about. You clicked on that article, you know, the sushi fanatic pulls a five-foot tapeworm out of his stomach or something, or, or the body of a homeless man found in San Diego is identified as Elvis Presley or something like that. And you want to find out, is this true? And you head on over to Snopes, right? If you want to find out, you know, is Facebook really going to sell all your emails to the Ukraine? Head on over to Snopes. Or, you know, is Ancestry.com selling, you know, copywriting your DNA? Head on over to Snopes. And you know, what I love about this story is it's like the Snopes of faith. It's a fact checker about what is and what isn't faith. Now, when you say the word faith, your mind can conjure up a lot of stuff. And, you know, and even in church, there's a lot of incorrect ideas about what faith is. So let's head over and get fact checked with the widow and Elijah. First of all, I just want to say, it's more than a feeling. Look, faith is not a feeling, okay? I feel for Elijah in this story because here, you know, he's getting this supernatural supply from God, and suddenly, through no fault of his own, it all dries up, and he needs another plan. And what does God say? Hey, Elijah, I want you to travel 50 miles from here because there's a widow who's going who's to give you some food. And, you know, Elijah's got to be like, are you kidding me? Like, are there no widows, like, in town, like, in the country? And just a sidebar here, the country in the town that he's sending Elijah to, Jezebel's hometown, just saying, there's some issues here. So Elijah, you know, he's a man of God, and he's obviously in good health because he's been eating, you know, twice a day, meat and bread. He's, he's unscathed by this famine, and now he's going to another country where this famine has also been devastating the people. Why? Because they're also worshiping Baal. And he's dressed, you know, he's dressed in his nice prophet robes, and, and he finally finds, he comes up to the town, and he sees this starving widow woman, and he approaches her to talk to her. And I just want you to imagine here for a second, 
if you, if the, the media backlash, if you saw Franklin Graham, like, fly all the way over to Africa, you know, with the starving children, right? And instead of giving them food, he leans down and he says, hey, what do you have? Give it to me first. I mean, can you imagine the heyday that the media would have with a situation like that? This would, this would be like melting people all over the place. It's really sort of like, you know, the awkward family photos of the Bible, if you think about it. This is a really awkward situation that God is putting Elijah in. You see, it doesn't require faith to ask for help from someone's abundance. It requires faith when you're asking for help out of somebody's lack, and Elijah needs that kind of faith right now. And I know, you know he wasn't feeling it in the story. And how do you know? Here, let's, let's take a look at it again. It says, he saw the widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, uh, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. <laughs> it, I don't know. Did you see it there? I don't know. Okay, maybe I, I could get some help. Um, can, I get, uh, can I get a guy to just volunteer here for a second? Can I get a guy? Just any guy. I don't care. Hey, Jesse, come on. <laughs> come on, let's give Jesse a hand, all right? You make a beautiful widow. Thank you. So, um, so, so first he asked, he asked for something. He asked for something really small. He asked for some water in a cup. And then it says, so I'm going to ask, hey, can you get me some water in a cup? And she turns to go get it, the Bible says, right? And then while, she, while she's walking up, he was like, and bring me some bread too. You see, he couldn't, even, he couldn't even say it to her face. He couldn't even look her in the eye while he's asking her for this. Hey, let's give Jesse a hand. What? This was awesome. He was obedient, but he wasn't feeling it. And when we step out in faith, you know, there's probably going to be a part of you that feels afraid, that feels kind of awkward about what's going on. But, you know, fear will paralyze you if you let it. And fear gets us asking the wrong questions. Like, what if I do this the wrong way? What if people laugh at me? What if I lose everything? You know, fear got Peter to look away from Jesus and focus on the storm and the waves. Fear, it urged Adam and Eve to try to hide in the garden from God Almighty who made them. Fear, it prompted Abraham to tell a lie about his wife. And fear, it kept the Hebrew people whom God had just demolished Egypt to save from entering into the promised land. Fear halted the army of Israel at the threats of Goliath. And the Bible says that the fearful cannot enter into heaven. Fear wanted that widow to tell Elijah to go get his own sandwich. And too often, you know, people get obsessed about their feelings. Am I right? I, I feel like, you know... I feel like a girl, so I need to use the girl's bathroom or whatever. You know, people are just all over the place on their feelings. God asks us to do things that feel uncomfortable because faith is proven when our trust in the goodness of God supersedes our fear or our discomfort in the circumstance. And after informing Elijah of the reality of the situation, what are the first words out of his mouth? Do not be afraid. Because we cannot operate in fear and in faith at the same time. It's going to be one or the other. Faith is not about your feelings. So release the fear and remember what you believe. Refocus on the greatness of your God. Make decisions based on your beliefs, on your principles, not what you're afraid of. Have confidence in the character and in the goodness of God. 
Here's something else faith is not. Faith is not about ignoring the facts, okay? And though, you know, we shouldn't let our feelings guide our faith, we also shouldn't ignore the facts. Faith is not an excuse to be ignorant about a situation. And the widow delivered all of the facts to Elijah. Here's what she says. I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in my house. And I only have a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil at the bottom of the jug. I was gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal. And then my son and I are going to die. Listen, God, God wants you to be certain that you know the facts. And when you read the Old Testament battles... He makes sure you know exactly to the number how big the enemy army is, how dire the situation was. And take a look at the conversation, you know, right before that miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. Here's what it says in John chapter 6. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. You know, the Bible says that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Did Jesus need Philip's advice on this? Did Jesus know how many people were standing there? Yes, he did. I'm going to tell you something about God. He reveals just as much of his character by the questions he asks as the answer he gives. You keep asking for answers, (laughs) but instead, maybe you need to pay attention to his questions. And I'm just going to let that one sit right there for a second, because somebody needs that. He asked the questions because he wants Philip to give him the facts. He wants the numbers, right? You know, maybe Philip is like the rain man of the disciples. I don't know. He's, he's able to do the math in his head. He's like, mm-hmm, 200 denarii, 200 denarii, not enough, right? So, so they could all work for 200 days, and still it would not be enough for everybody to just get a crumb. You didn't see the movie Rain Man, did you? It's all right. Now, Jesus highlights this fact because he's about to do the impossible, and he wants all of us to know that even on our best day, we are still inadequate to the needs that we face. And here are the facts. It's impossible. It's not just vaguely impossible. It's, it's totally impossible. Faith isn't about ignoring the facts, but we have faith in a God who can change the facts. And you have to get honest with yourself about where you really are if you're going to get where you need to go. So go to the doctor and get the test done and then sit down with the financial counselor or go talk to the lawyer and get all the facts. Don't ignore them. Don't push it all aside. But remember, when you see the facts, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. Sight says, "Eh, it's not going to happen. And the beauty of this widow is she presents the facts. She said, listen, I got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, and I'm going to make a couple of paper-thin pancakes, and we're going to eat it and die, okay? Sight told her, Elijah is not sitting behind the wheel of a Schwann delivery truck, okay? He does not have food with him. And there are things about God that we can only learn when we are facing a bad situation, He wants us to know how bad the situation is so that we can see how good God is. Can I get an amen this morning? Look, faith is also not wishful thinking, okay? 
I'm hoping for the best. I mean, how many times have you heard that? How many times have you said that? How many, have you ever, like, you know, gotten in your car and you, you, you need to get somewhere that you've never been before? Have you said, well, hoping for the best and start driving? No. I, I remember when, uh, when my wife and I were dating, she lived and worked um, at the Pentagon, was living in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it's a crazy mess. It's like spaghetti, okay, of highways and exits and on-ramps and toll roads and interchanges. It's difficult to navigate there. And, there, and this is like before Google Maps, okay? And so I'm, I'm out there, you know, taking her out on a date, and we're trying, trying to navigate this place. And she's like, I feel like we need to go that way. I'm like, what do you mean you feel? Do you not know the names of the streets? I mean, are you using the force here, or what's happening? We're hoping for the best. Faith is not wishful thinking. You know, the world has something that it calls karma. This is not karma. You know, what comes around goes around. Karma is not faith. You know, if karma was faith, then the widow, what? She gives a meal, and she's going to get a meal. And then, boom, that's it. But this is better than karma, right? Faith is so much better. Um, Here's what it says in 1 Kings 17. He says, don't be afraid. Go ahead. Do what you said. Then make but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. He didn't say, give me something to eat and hope for the best. Uh Uh-uh. He gave her a promise something that she could hold on to, something for her, for her situation. And the Bible is full of promises of God to you, promises for me. They may not have manifested yet in my life, but they are still your promises, right? Now, for example, like, you know, someday in the future, Kirsten and I are going to die, but all of our stuff is going to belong to our kids, right? It's already theirs. It's not manifested now, but it doesn't make it any less theirs right? The Bible isn't just revealing the will of God. It is the will of God. It's everything that you inherit, his promises, everything that he's giving you as as the king of the universe upon his death. And guess what? Jesus died. And when you gave your life to him, you get all of those promises. Now, it's also true he rose from the dead, right? But the lawyers, they don't have a category for that. So you still get it, right? You need to read the will of God regularly and find the truth about those promises, about what he says about what belongs to you and who he is in your life and what you are and who you are and what belongs to you. Then have faith, confident expectation that it is yours. Faith is not saying, well, let's just wait and see. You know, today you can get online, go home and get on your phone or your computer and pretty much have anything that you want delivered to your house. In fact, uh, you you don't even have to go out and shop for groceries anymore because now there's companies that will deliver the groceries that you want them to deliver based on what it is you want to cook. You tell them, they bring it, right? But faith is not wait and see. Or, and it's not, you know, well, if it's meant to be, it will happen. Or, you know, if it's God's will, he'll do it. God is not the home shopping network, Okay. You're sitting and watching TV at home, boom, there's the miracle. No, that's not how this works. When you look at the miracles of Jesus, you see that there was an action required first before the miracle took place. Jesus said to Peter, get out of the boat and come to me. Or he says to the cripple, get up, take up your bed and walk. Or to a dead person, Lazarus, come forth. 
we, we tend to kind of gloss over those passively because we know how the story works out. But, you know, rise and walk. How are you going to do that one? Jesus wants a response. He wants you invested. People had to do something before they saw the miracle. And it's in this story too. The impossible thing that Elijah is asking of this widow is, give me the last bit of your food instead of your son. And then your flour and oil will never run out. And so she did, as Elijah said. And it says she and her family and Elijah continued to eat for many days. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anyone's help at all. He could have done all this without any sacrifice. Look, how many of you ever heard the phrase skin in the game, right? You know what I'm talking about? To have skin in the game, it means that you have risked some of your personal finances in the company that you're running. God didn't, God didn't need the flour and the oil. She needed to risk something, and not just something small. She needed to do something that seemed impossible. She needed to risk the last, the last of her resources, her last hope. He's God, but he wants us to have some skin in this game. You know what I'm saying? Some investment, some risk, so that we can learn something about these principles of faith and we can be a part of the story of a miracle and be participants with God and experience a miracle unfolding in our lives and our families. But we gotta do something. We don't get to play the, well, let's wait and see how it all works out kind of game. No, no, we gotta take a step we got to put ourselves out there a little bit, take a little bit of a risk. You know what I'm saying? Can't play it sa- you can't play it safe. It, it just operate only within the confines of the facts or only within the confines of our limitations or only within the confines of our intellect and then somehow expect God to deliver a miracle into that kind of thinking, into the kind of thinking that can just take all the little pieces and rationalize God right out of the equation, right? Because This is practical atheism is what I'm describing here, this kind of thinking, okay? Let's just call it what it is. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God wants to show up. God wants to show off in your life in a way that, but in a way that only he will get the glory, not you and not anybody else. He wants us to step outside of the box, and then he will make what we thought impossible, possible. An altar is just a pile of stones and wood if there's not a sacrifice on it. And what makes it an altar to God is the sacrifice. Jesus tells a story about a about a master, and he, he gives his servants different portions of money while he's away on a journey. And the instructions are, invest the money so that they will produce a profit. And you cannot invest and get a profit without risk. You have, you have two servants who did it successfully, right? And then one who does nothing. No skin in the game. He buried the money and then gave it back to the master when he shows up. You know, the money didn't belong to the servants, did it? I mean, imagine if I'm Oprah here this morning and I give everybody $1,000 and say, go invest it. You, you get 1000 and you get 1000 and you get 1000 right? No, uh, invest it in a way that will get profit. And you might, you know, research something or look at Bitcoin or I don't know, whatever you're going to look at. But are you scared? No, because it's my money, not your money. 
The same is true with our resources. If we really put our faith in God, if we've really turned over all of our lives and everything in them to his care, then it's his, right? Am I right? If he asks for something, he's the king. It's already his. So who's really risking here? You know what I'm saying? Faith says, if God is for us, who can be against us? All of your actions are firmly rooted in your beliefs. If you believe the doubts, if you believe your fears, if you believe the lies of Satan, you're going to act on those beliefs regardless of what your mouth is saying. But if you believe that God is in control, if you believe that God cares about you and your situation, if you believe that he is in fact working all things together for your good, if you believe that his mercies endure forever, if you believe that his name is higher and his power is greater, then you will act on those beliefs. If there's no action backing it up, guess what? It's not. It's not faith. The apostle James said, faith without works is it's dead. Take a step. Because this widow became a legend that we're still talking about today. But she had to take an action. Remember what God told Joshua? I will give you every place that you set your foot. It wasn't going to be just delivered to him. It required Joshua to move, to go, to walk around, to put his foot somewhere, to conquer. He had to move in faith. And you just can't play wait and see with God. It's not going to happen that way. You know, the apostle Thomas had that mindset. You know, everybody's talking. We saw Jesus. We saw Jesus. He's like, nope, not going to believe until I see it. And then guess what? (laughs) Jesus shows up. It says in John 20, Jesus said, you believe because you saw me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Stop waiting to see if God's going to just work it all out. He's not going to sign your prenup, okay? Start believing the promise of God and let your actions showcase your faith. This widow and her boy, they were at the end of their supply. They were at the end of hope. And guess what they found? They found a real God. Not the fake one that that their whole nation had been worshiping. They found something real. Her simple faith in the promise expressed in the irrational act of giving away the food she had began a divine exchange in her life. She did something unexplainable, and then God did something unexplainable. It says she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised. There's going to come a time in your life and you're going to look back on this situation and you're going to say, it was just, it was just as the Lord had promised. Am I right or am I right? Faith is a divine exchange. Exchanging what we can see for what we don't. Exchanging what seems logical and reasonable for what is impossible. Exchanging our feelings for a promise. Exchanging our insufficiency and our lack for his abundance. Exchanging the disposable for what is eternal. Exchanging our death and our sins for his eternal life. Jesus said if a seed falls to the ground and dies, it's going to yield many seeds. Jesus asks us to engage in that divine exchange. And if it's risky, it feels risky because it is. And you've been holding on to something like it's the last morsel of food you got. And you know what? Jesus is looking right at that thing. And he's saying, I want that. 
give it to me. But he's not just there making demands on you. No, he models what this means and what this looks like. Jesus shows us what risk really looks like by giving up his reputation, by giving up his rights, by giving up his own body to be beaten and nailed to a cross so that we might know forgiveness. And you know what? He didn't wait for us to start repenting before he did it. He wasn't like, oh, well, finally, now they're trying to get things right. Guess I'll go to the cross. No. It says, while we were still sinners, while we were rebels, we wanted nothing to do with him. We had wanted nothing to do with his kingship or his lordship. Guess what? Jesus died for us, and he began the exchange. He's got some skin in the game. Now he says, you want eternal life? Give yours away. Spend it on me. Spend it serving others. Give it away. And then I'm going to show you the kind of life that can never be taken away. And today, God is inviting you to engage in a divine exchange. Come on, let's stand and give him thanks in his house this morning.